saving our salmon here in the Pacific Northwest, what's the best way to do that? What's really going to work to restore these struggling salmon runs? We know, especially from the events and the news of the past year or two, that restoring the salmon runs is critical to protecting the orca as well, particularly the endangered southern resident orca that uh, call the Puget Sound waters home, or at least part of their home territory. So, uh, you know, a lot of effort and energy has been put on this issue of salmon. We know it's very important to the farming community as well. We believe that uh, fish need farming and that farming, because of that, need fish as well. And we'll be talking about that more on the program as we go forward. Welcome back. This is The Farming Show on KGMI News Talk 790. I'm Dylan Honkoop. I'm with Save Family Farming, uh, focusing on uh, protecting a future for family farming across Washington State. And joining me right now with the Washington Policy Center, free market think tank here in our great state, Todd Myers. Todd, just uh, within about a week or so ago, uh, the latest science review of... Uh, one of the big talked about points for saving salmon has come up. The, the, the scientists have again looked at this. This is a big federal study looking at what some are saying is the number one thing that needs to be done to protect salmon. And the federal study said, no, basically, it's not the number one thing that needs to be done. Explain wh- what the scoop is on this idea of removing those dams on the Snake River. So a judge ordered uh, the Army Corps of Engineers and other federal agencies to look at the four lower Snake River dams um, at their <clears throat> impact on salmon and then the various other benefits they provide. The four dams provide about 7% of Washington State's um, electricity. It's mostly carbon-free. Uh, they also provide transportation down the river, some flood control, some irrigation, those sorts of things. And what it did is, is that it looked at all of those various things, used models to determine whether destroying the dams would be the best option. And what they found is, is that on balance, no, it would do more harm than good to tear down the dams uh, because although there might be some benefit to salmon, um, it would be relatively small compared to the losses that you would get um, in electricity. Um, We're facing electricity shortages in the near future, and this would exacerbate those problems and then the other benefits. So on the whole, what the environmental impact statement said is it's better to keep them and manage their impact than it is to destroy the dams. It was interesting to see the reaction to this even before the the results of this study were made public, but when they were coming uh, and about to be released, and I think some people had kind of an advance heads up of what was going to be in there, the reaction from some in in various advocacy communities that have been saying all along, this is the number one thing we need to do when they heard that this was going to say, no, it actually isn't the number one thing that we need to do to save the salmon. Uh, What's the deal with these groups now? And and what are they saying in reaction to this? Do they want to buy, you know, and and agree with and and, uh, support the the federal science on this? Well, the the folks who say that, that tearing down the snake river dams is the number one thing, 
to help salmon and orca um, are simply ignoring all of the science <laughs> because uh, NOAA Fisheries, the Washington State Department of uh, Fish and Wildlife, um, and others have looked at what we need to do region-wide to help salmon and the orca. And the Snake River dams um, are very far down on the list. The Snake River itself is very far down on the list of priorities for orca. Um, and tearing down the dams would only have um, what the NOAA Fisheries calls a marginal impact on um, salmon for the orca. The number one place that we can help salmon, both in the region, um, just for salmon's sake, and then for orca, is Puget Sound um, along the coast, uh, the uh, uh, Georgia Strait. I mean, other places like that. That's where we should put our money. And what's interesting is, is if you look over the last two decades, the trend of salmon populations on the Snake River has been upward. Um, that hasn't been the case in Puget Sound. We are barely, we are basically flat or even declining. And there are ups and downs. And the last two or three years in the Snake River were down, very far down. But so that's also true of the Columbia River, and it's also true of Puget Sound. So we have a regional problem due to ocean conditions and a variety of things. But if you're looking where you want to get the most bang for your buck for salmon and orca, it is in Puget Sound on the coast, not the Snake River. Todd Myers with us. He is the director for the Center for the Environment with the Washington Policy Center. Um, and by the way, this is the Farming Show here on KGMI. I'm Dylan Honkoop. Todd, what about these people, though, in response to what you're just saying, who say, well, no, there are other studies that show that this is this is still one of the most important things or or that's not what our research shows, because what you're reflecting, what you're telling me about this study <clears throat> is very much in line with previous federal studies that have done this. And, and, and the reporting, you, know, you read a Linda Mapes article in the Seattle Times, and it always represents that side of the story, which you're sharing, and then these folks with other groups um, who say, well, no, that's not actually really the case. How is a news consumer or anybody following this story supposed to know who to believe? Because there are still groups out there, from my understanding, who are saying, no, that's actually not the case. No, we can't actually believe this federal study. Well, there's two things. One is... Um if you want to rely on, you know, sound science, uh, it is good to start with the agencies. I don't, I mean, I work for a state environmental agency, so um, I see, I've seen the work that they do close up. They, you know, they try to get it right. That doesn't mean they're always right. It doesn't mean they're always perfect. I certainly am critical of government agencies um, quite a bit. Um, I, but I also know that there's a lot of individual studies out there that have a lot of that make a lot of claims that turn out not to be true um and so you know uh, environmental groups save our wild salmon those forks like to cherry pick studies that say what they want because they have a political agenda the second thing is and i think this is very important is that sometimes what is claimed as science is actually a simple personal um, value preference you know what's important to me um and so when you see um, there's an orca researcher named deborah giles at the university of washington who says tearing down the snake river dams is the most important thing Thing we can do that's not a reflection of the science because she doesn't she's not a scientist in that area that's a reflection that she doesn't care what the cost is to anybody else she cares about one thing which is orca and so anything big or small that helps orca is okay by her um, and she doesn't care what the cost is and in fact i asked her what you know where would we get the money to do this what should we take the money away from um, and
And her answer was, uh, and she said, she said it in a letter, I go with the old saying, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. And there's two things about that. One, it's Karl Marx, which is very strange to be quoting Karl Marx um, as a biologist or anybody else, frankly. But second, it is absolutely irresponsible to say, we'll find the money somewhere. The money doesn't grow on trees and you're going to take it from somewhere. And if what we end up doing is taking it from projects in Puget Sound that really make a difference and putting it toward the Snake River dams, which are very low priority and don't make much of a difference, we have harmed salmon and orca. And to ignore those trade-offs is not just wrong, it is irresponsible. Well, and to take it one step further, if I'm understanding this correctly, and and the things that I've seen and, and what you're saying here today further reinforces my understanding of this, but e- even if you take the, the, the human costs out of it, the economic costs, which I, I, you know, again, from my perspective, take this whole idea off the table from the get-go because it would de- be debilitating to our region, and I think, you know, a weak economy is the worst economy to be able to protect the environment, but another show entirely um but if you take all that economic stuff all the human costs off the table this still would have environmental costs as well to go down this road um that make the whole thing debatable whether or not it it destroys our economy right Yes, because tearing down the dams costs a minimum of a billion dollars. It probably costs more like two to three billion dollars. And even those who have argued that we should tear down the Snake River dams admit that it will cost about half a billion dollars a year in additional electricity costs to replace the electricity from those dams. So what can you get for all that money? Well, we spend about $50 million a year for salmon recovery in Puget Sound and along the coast. And a billion dollars is 20 years worth of funding. $3 billion is 60 years worth of funding. Are you willing to spend 60 years worth of funding to tear down the Snake River Dance? Is it worth that? And the answer is clearly no. We can do a lot of things over the course of 20 or 60 years to help salmon with that funding. $500 million a year in additional electricity costs is 10 years of funding. And that's every year. So what you're talking about are massive costs of resources that could go to putting money where it is most beneficial that won't be able to, that will be siphoned off for a project that no fishery says will have a marginal impact on orca. Like That's why I say this is not just wrong, it's irresponsible, because the folks who are, are making these arguments about tearing down the dams ignore those costs and sort of wave them off. And doing that is going to lead us down a path where we make really bad decisions and end up doing more harm than good. So you're you're saying actually their opposition to uh, to the science here is actually harming fish in and of itself, the, the politics that are going on with us. If they lead us to spend money where it makes no sense, then that will be the case. Absolutely. And people point to um, the removal of the Elwha dams, and you see people like Linda Mapes of the Seattle Times saying what a success that was. Well, if you look at the salmon runs uh, on the Elwha, they have not increased, um, uh, despite the fact what people uh, claim. They just simply haven't looked at the data. The data show they have not increased. And what's more, more than 90% of those fish are hatchery fish. Before the dams were removed, 96% of the fish were hatchery fish. In the most recent year that WDFW did a study, which was a couple years ago, 
96% of the fish are hatchery fish. So this is not an argument to remove yeah. the Elwha dams. They weren't functional anymore. They were very old. They had lots yeah. of problems. They're very different than the Snake River yeah. dams. Apples they and oranges. About, yeah. They are about the perfect example of when you might tear down a dam. And even in that scenario, we are not seeing the response that was claimed. Yeah. Taking out the Elwha dams. I mean, they, they weren't major power generators. They didn't protect, ma- you know, huge growing regions, farming regions from flooding. Uh, they they didn't provide transportation for millions, if not billions of dollars worth of various products, including agricultural. Pro- you know, there's so many reasons why that's a totally different scenario. And, and yeah, you're saying even in that case, um, the results have not shown up i I think a lot of people have no idea that's that's the the case especially with those elwa dams they've they all they've heard is the 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 sense that it's a a glowing success story right and because people who have political motives who want it to be a success story who claim that it would be a success story um now are just simply saying you know it's it's doing great i've even seen articles where they say it is even better than we expected well, well, based on what? Certainly not based on the number of fish or wild fish. Because they must have had really low expectations. <laughs> Perhaps that's true. I mean, and, and, and there's, I mean, and there's another sort of humorous angle of this, which is, is that they claimed that tearing down the dams would increase recreation to the area, which would be a boon for Clallam County. Well, the problem is, is that about a year after they took out the dams, it was a couple of years, uh, because the dams don't control the flow of the river anymore, the river took out the road up into that area, that portion of Olympic National Park, and now there are zero visitors in that area. So, you know, so that's... Well, I mean, we all know the when they're making an argument like that, they didn't actually care about recreational opportunities in the area for the people that that those kind of statements come from you know it just doesn't line up it's disingenuous i think on its face when when those groups say things like that i i think so but people make these arguments all the time and for the general public who doesn't track this like you and i do they say oh well maybe that's true maybe that makes sense that more people would go up there um but i think we have to let them know that no now you can actually test these claims after the fact Mm -hmm. and after the fact they turn out to be wrong Todd Myers, uh, director for the Center for the Environment at Washington Policy Center, a free market think tank here in Washington State, on the farming show with me here on KGMI this morning. Uh, Todd, down in Olympia, just to shift gears a little bit here, uh, the low carbon fuel standard has a lot of people upset. In fact, uh, the timber community, along with some support from the farming community, has been protesting in a pretty significant way uh, around the Capitol in the past several days about this. So worrying about the, you know, potentially 50 cent plus per gallon cost that this low carbon fuel standard could have on, uh, you know, transportation industries, on farming, on on uh, timber and other resource uh, industries. What's going on with this? What What is the low carbon fuel standard and, and what's our situation as we stand right now? So a low carbon fuel standard is uh, the goal is to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide emitted by each gallon of gas by 10% uh, by the late, by about eight years from now, and then by 20% in the 2030s. And the way they do that is a variety of things. One, they can mix biofuels, but biofuels can only, you know, only so much biofuels can be mixed before your engine starts to 
have damage. So they provide other ways to do it, such as switching over your fleet to natural gas, installing electric vehicle car charging stations. And each of those uh, tactics uh, creates credits. And then gasoline companies buy those credits and then pass on the price um, at the pump. And that's where you get these estimates and uh, of you know cost per gallon. What you will hear, though, is from folks who say, oh, no, no, Oregon and California are doing this and it's not costing much there. The governor likes to repeat a claim that it costs less than a penny a gallon in Oregon. But what he doesn't say is, is that that number is for 2018. And that was when the uh, low carbon fuel standard in Oregon was only 10% of the way implemented because the, the goals ramp up every year and it's very early. Well, in 2019, when it went from 10% implementation to 15% implementation, the number jumped from a penny to 2.4 cents. So more than doubled by just going up 5% of implementation. So based on that, you're going to get, you know, almost 20 cents a gallon when it's fully implemented. Um, so it's very expensive for 10%. And then if we go to 20%, which is what they want to do in the state of Washington, it goes even higher. In California, they did modeling and they said, oh, here's how much it will cost uh, by 2030. And the current prices are already higher than their projected prices for 2030. Mm. So the costs are rapidly going up. And the problem is that it's not merely that it costs more at the pump, but in terms of reducing CO2, it's unbelievably expensive. A low carbon fuel standard in California is about 29 times as expensive for every unit of CO2 you reduce as other technologies that you can get on the market today. So you're wasting more than 90% of the money that you're spending. If you really care about reducing CO2, you would demand the most bang for your buck and wasting 28 out of every $29 on CO2 reduction shows that you, you don't care about CO2 reduction as much. You care about, you know, showing that you care um, and doing something bold and dramatic and political. Because if you cared about maximizing CO2 reduction, you would never choose a low carbon fuel standard. So again, about virtue signaling rather than real results. It really is. And one of the other arguments that they make is that this would reduce particulate matter, which is sort of a traditional air pollutant, which is harmful, which does cause problems. And they say, well, this will reduce particulate matter in low-income communities, in, especially in urban communities. So I looked at California, where their, um, you know, low, where their electric vehicle charging stations and all of the people who were creating credits under a low-carbon fuel standard, where they were creating those credits. And they weren't creating the credits in the low-income communities. They were creating credits in wealthy communities. Mm. Wealthy communities got twice the reduction of particulate matter as low-income communities. So basically what we're doing is we're paying more to subsidize reductions in air pollution in wealthy communities. So even their claim that this helps low-income communities isn't true. And the reason is they didn't look at the data. They simply made an argument. They said, oh, this will, you know, this helps reduce particulate matter, which is bad in low-income communities, and so we should do it. But they never took the time to see, okay, does this actually solve the problem that we care about? And when you look at the data and the experience of California, the answer is no, it does not. And really, in that way, it's a regressive tax on those same low-income folks because they, <clears throat> they pay just as much as the rest of us, right? Yeah. If you want to solve you know, asthma and low-income communities and other health problems that they identify, uh, 
uh, paying more for electric car charging stations in Bellevue is not going to do it. Todd Myers with the Washington Policy Center. We're out of time, but we appreciate you following these issues so closely and breathing some real science and, and good um, big picture thinking into all of this rather than just virtual signaling, talking about what will really move the dial for the environment and for the people of the state. Um, always good to chat with you. It's good to chat with you.